So we're here on uh, St. Patrick's, and uh, <clears throat> Sherry and I were walking over this morning. It was cold, and I just remember in our, our guide in Ireland, when, when we'd come out in the morning, it'd be cold. Oh, it's a, it's a fresh morning. No, it's just cold. It really is. And so I was thinking about that this morning as we were walking over here and uh, in the chill and thinking, you know, this would be a good morning to put some Jamesons in your porridge, except I'm really not. I just can't get to whiskey in my oatmeal. I'm sorry. I just can't go there. So <clears throat> for those of you that don't know, I mean, I know, you know, St. Patrick's is, is, is one of those things where a lot of times we... Uh, uh, you know, we have all the little traditions and the green and stuff and all that, uh, and, and make kind of light of it. Uh, but th- there's actually some, some substance behind that, just for a brief little bit of Christian history. Uh, you know, Christianity begins in, in the crescent of the Middle East and, uh, and spreads from there over into Eurasia and into Northern Africa. And the, and the early Christian church, uh, those were the centers of faith. And so uh, Istanbul, then Constantinople, becomes the, the center uh, of the early Christian church for the first 300 years of its life. Uh, it really is centered around there. Uh, and the Gospels come out of Northern Africa. Uh, they, they are written and shaped in the communities of Northern Africa, and that's where our Gospels come out of. So, so they, they, it all kind of comes in that area and, and builds from there, and then it crosses the Mediterranean. You know, you hear Paul on his uh, evangelistic journeys uh, going into those areas across a, a, a on Greece and then over into Rome, and, and then later on it's going to spread even further. But it spreads into Europe from Northern Africa and the Middle East and Eurasia. And spreads into Europe, and we oftentimes are kind of Eurocentric in the way we think of the Christian faith, uh, but that's really not accurate historically. So it moves across there, and then uh, you have this period of time when you have the, the Mongols coming from one way and the Goths coming from the other, and they come into Europe and they sack Rome, and and and, and Europe is plunged into the Dark Ages. And when that happens, uh, a lot of the documents, a lot of the meat, if you will, of the faith is taken over to the Isles of Great Britain for safekeeping uh, from the place. And uh, Ireland particularly prides itself on its role in that. Uh, it, it actually refers to itself as the Ark of Christianity, that that's where the Christian faith was saved. There's even a book about how the Irish saved Christianity. Uh, I can't remember the guy that wrote it, but, but there's, you know, it's a big thing. And uh, if you go over to Ireland, they'll, they'll tell you all about it. Trust me. Uh, and if you go to Trinity College, to the library in Trinity College, which you ought to go anyway just because it's amazing, but uh, you go to see the Book of Kells uh, there, which is a, a fascinating thing. But there's also these uh, evangelistic gospels. Uh, they're small books. Uh, they were carried in leather pouches uh, that are there from the five and six hundreds uh, that the Irish monks carried with them when they re-evangelized Germany and Europe. Uh, and so you kind of begin to understand, you know, oh, they, yeah, they really, they really were kind of the, the place that held the faith for that period of time before it could go back onto the European continent. Uh, and so there's, a, there's, there's more to St. Patrick's than just a wearing of the green and, and all the, the frivolity around that. You need to understand the, the depth of the faith that's there. Uh, we're going to continue this morning. We're talking about this journey of hope uh, going toward the Cantata on Palm Sunday, and, uh, <clears throat> which you're going to want to be here for because this is really good stuff. Yeah, Saturday also, Saturday night and 8, 15, and 11 on Sunday. Um, 
And it's built around a, a variety of spirituals. And if you listened this morning as the choir sang, you should have been able to identify three of them. Uh, I, I want Jesus to walk with me, uh, give me Jesus, and I've decided to follow Jesus. Now, two of those, give me Jesus, I want Jesus to walk with me, come out of our African-American uh, tradition here in the United States and, and uh, uh, were, were songs that uh, came really out of the slave communities to a large degree. And, and they're, they're sung prayers. Uh, for Jesus to come and be with them, uh, to, to walk with them through that, those difficult, horrible times, uh, to give them strength and to lift them up uh, and to enable them to live through that and survive through that. Uh, so they're prayers of, of sustaining and, and presence to be with them. I have decided to follow Jesus, though, comes from a very different kind of setting. Uh, most of you know that, <clears throat> either through Emmaus, you've sung it on Emmaus walks, or if you're a little older like I am, uh, you'll remember that that was one of Billy Graham's favorites, and, and Billy Graham always included that in his crusades when he did his revivals. Uh, that was always one of the songs that was sung. Uh, but what you probably don't know about that song is that it, the, the background of it, the providence of it, is very different from the other two. And I'm, I'm going to talk a little more about that later in the sermon. Uh, but uh, you might be surprised to learn the depth of that song that you probably have sung, especially if you've been on Emmaus, you probably have sung kind of in a rowdy way. So uh, uh, it may be a little different than what you imagine. Let's pray this morning. Father, we give you thanks for this fresh morning, and we thank you for the freshness of the wind of your spirit that blows on us, that opens our hearts and our minds to hear what you have to say to us. So let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, because you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So if you look at the four Gospels, you know, Matthew and Luke start off with the birth stories of Jesus and his lineage and all that kind of thing. Uh, uh, John, who's in a very different place from all the other three Gospels, John, John's got this cosmic vision, right? In the beginning was the Word. I mean, you know, it's this big cosmic vision uh, that goes all the way back to the very beginning of creation. Uh, Mark's Gospel starts with the story of Jesus' baptism. Uh, and Mark's Gospel is the oldest of all of those. It's the original teaching document of the church. Um, people memorized Mark's gospel uh, before they were baptized in the early church, and they had to be able to recite it. Uh, and so this is this it's the very kind of fundamental kind of basic piece. And, and, and all four of them, in spite of that, in all four of them, what happens is uh, after these kind of initial acts, if you will, of the gospel, and Jesus is prepared to, to start his ministry, uh, the first thing that happens is he calls the disciples, the first act of ministry. So you have um, this story. After John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Now, um, uh, as I pointed out to you before, that, that come near there uh, in, in the original language means it's, it's at hand. It's not just that it's somewhere around here. It's, it's close enough that I can reach out and lay hand on it. And uh, Clarence Jordan, who uh, wrote the Cotton Patch Gospels, uh, wrote about this and he said, you know, if you think about it, you know, here, here you are and Jesus is standing there and he's going, you know what? The kingdom of God is here. It's so close. You could put your hand on it. What would, what would you say? Well, show it to me. I want to put my hand on it, right? I'm going to touch it. And if it's that close, right? I mean, that's what we would do. And so where did he go from there? How did he point them forward from there? As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. 
And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, if you've never thought about this group that he assembles as disciples, let me help you get a little different picture of this. And again, I'm indebted to Clarence Jordan for this. Um, the, the, one of them is Philip. Um, the name Philip is a Greek name. It's not a Hebrew name. Uh, it's not an Arabic name. It's, it's a Greek name. And the fact that he's named Philip alone tells us something. Uh, near the Sea of Galilee, there's a community that was called Sephorus, which was a, uh, a big Greek colony. Uh, it's where the government of that area was based. Uh, a lot of the people who were in there were what they called Hellenists. They were folks of Greek background uh, living in the Middle East. And... Uh, <clears throat> Those folks would have been, um, I, mean, I mean, a high social kind of caste. They would have been upper income folks. Uh, they would have looked different from the rest of the Hebrews because the men would have shaved and they, the Hebrews didn't do that. And uh, they would have dressed differently. Uh, they would have had Greek would have been their primary language. They would have been educated in Greek schools and Greek way of thinking. And that's very different. Uh, Hebrew, uh, true Hebrew thought is Eastern, which means it's circular in its patterns. Whereas true Greek thought is linear uh, in its patterns. So they're very different. And, and if you actually read some of the original language writings, you, you can see that's why Paul's letters sometimes, the sentences are like a whole paragraph long because he can't quite get to the end of the circle. Uh, but you have this difference. So, so Philip is, is Greek in the way he thinks, the way he dresses, the way he looks. He's upper income. He speaks Greek. He probably also has some uh, Hebrew, maybe a little Aramaic. But, but he's this very kind of sophisticated person. And next to him, you have uh, Simon and Andrew and James and John. You have these fishermen who fish on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, these guys who are kind of, you know, basic blue-collar kind of guys, uh, probably minimal amount of education. They're probably speaking mostly Aramaic, uh, which is pretty much a dead language now, but, but there's a few of them around. Uh, but it's primarily Aramaic. They speak with some Hebrew they learned in the synagogue. Uh, they're a little bit rough around the edges. Uh, I grew up on the Texas coast, been around a lot of commercial fishermen and shrimpers over the years. They're a little bit rough around the edges. That's who they are. Uh, good people, but a little rough, a little unsophisticated. And so you have, a, you have this sophisticated Philip here, and then you've got these, these, these fishermen who are showing up. And then you have Levi, who's going to become Matthew. Uh, and Levi's the tax collector, which means he's a traitor. Literally, he's a traitor. Uh, he, he's a Jewish person who is collecting taxes from the Jewish people to pay the occupying Roman forces. And they were rather well-known, uh, these guys that were the tax collectors, for collecting a little extra and holding on to it, keeping it in their own pocket. Uh, they were pretty universally hated uh, from the Jews of, of that day and age. Uh, they were treason. That was treason. They were traitors. Uh, people didn't like them that much. And so you have him. And, and then you have Simon the Zealot. Not Simon Iscariot, but Simon the Zealot. And the Zealots were the, uh, if you will, the freedom fighters of ancient Israel. Uh, these are the guys who uh, are, are, are vowed to overthrow the Roman government. And, and, and the Zealots have this um, kind of understanding among themselves. They can't really go against Rome in pure force. So they're, they're kind of like a guerrilla force, if you will. I mean, they set things on fire. They break things. They steal things. And, and one of the things that they've all agreed to is anytime they can, if they're one-on-one, with one of the Roman soldiers or one of the Roman rulers or whatever, no one else is around, they stick a knife in them. If you had put Levi and Simon the Zealot in a room alone and left them together, you would have gotten murder. <laughs> so, so Jesus takes this group of guys and he pulls them all together and he puts them in a room together 
you know, all on a place, which, you know, really is a really, I mean, for most of us, that's, I mean, it's a really bad idea. But he brings them all together, and this becomes the disciples. And when people would say, show us the kingdom of God, he would say, well, you can touch me or any one of these guys. Because this community is the kingdom of God. Because all of those men came together, all those men came together and were redefined by their relationship with Christ. Now I want you to hear this. It's not just that they decide to put aside their differences. They are transformed, reshaped from the inside out by the Holy Spirit to become followers and disciples of Christ. You remember this, this guy, Peter, who, you know, every time Peter opens his mouth, he says the wrong thing. You know, he's always, he's got a quick temper, he's inarticulate, and the Holy Spirit transforms him into the great orator and apostle of the early church. That, that's not just a minor change. This is a huge shift. I mean, the, the Holy Spirit brings them together, and in the presence of Christ, they are remade, they are transformed and people will look at them knowing who they had been and see who they had become. And would see a picture of the kingdom of God. And immediately, <laughs> immediately they left their nets. Immediately. Uh, the word means with nothing in between. Literally, that's what it means. Nothing in between. No, no media. Nothing in between. Immediately they left their nets. This is kind of like, you know, if Jesus showed up at your house in the morning, Sam, and said, Sam, today's the day I want you to follow me. And Sam would say, okay. And he wouldn't tell Arlena he was leaving. That's dangerous. Uh, he wouldn't tell Arlena he was leaving. He wouldn't tell his daughters he was leaving. Uh, he wouldn't get his keys. He wouldn't pack a bag. He'd say, okay, let's go and walk out the front door and leave. Immediately, they left. Now, now let's think about this for a minute. Jesus shows up and calls all of us at various times, and, and do we, is that immediately, is that what we do? Is that really what we do? Or are we better about coming up with the reasons we can't do that? You know, in Luke's gospel, there's this passage where Jesus is issuing the call, and people come up with some interesting excuses, right? As they're going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds really good, right? Wherever you go, I will follow you. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So when I was in Llano, um, one of my church members there, her family who had had a ranch down near Uvalde for uh, about three or four generations at that time, uh, came to talk to me because their parents had decided to sell the property. This was their family place. Uh, this is where, where people had been born for generations in her family. This is where whenever they had a, a, you know, a Thanksgiving and Christmas or a big celebration, this is where they went. Uh, this is when they had weddings, they held them on the ranch. When they had funerals, people were buried on the ranch. So all of our ancestors were in the family cemetery there and, and, and all of their identity was tied to that piece of property. And, and then her parents called her and said, well, we've decided we're gonna sell it. And she came in my office and she said, I don't, I, don't, I don't know who I am without that piece of property. I feel lost. Now, now, you know, I'm a kid that grew up and we moved every so many years from house to house and different places and all that. My wife's an army brat. 
So, you know, I'm kind of going, I don't get it. And she's going, no, I don't get it either. And, and also, so I went to uh, see Charles Moss. Uh, the Moss family uh, is the family that donated the property of Enchanted Rock uh, State Park to the state of Texas. Uh, multi-generations out there. And I said, Charles, help me get this. And he said, Tom, we're, we're defined by the land. We're connected to it. This is how we understand. We are, we are the people who live on this piece of land. That's how we understand ourselves. That's where our identity comes from that. And if you take away the land, you've taken our identity. We really don't know who we are. And Jesus says, you know, foxes have holes. You know, birds of the air, they have a place, nests. You know, they have, they have these places they go to. But the Son of Man has nowhere to go because the kingdom is everywhere in all times and in all places. And so if you're going to follow me, you're really going to be doing wherever you go. And you're going to have to let go of everything you're attached to. I had breakfast with a uh, district superintendent from Eastern Russia a couple of weeks ago in St. Louis. Uh, that's the Eurasia annual province. Uh, his family's from Moscow. They've lived there for several generations. That's where they all live. He's out in Eastern Russia now. And I said, boy, that sounds really tough. He says, yeah, I haven't seen him in like nine months. And I'm going, you haven't seen your family in nine months? He says, well, he says, you know, I have a pretty big district to cover. I go, really? How big is it? He goes, well, it covers seven time zones. I'm going, no, 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 you mean, you mean it's seven hours, I'm thinking it's English, you know, it's seven hours from one end to the other. And he goes, no, it's seven time zones from one end to the other. And I've had no time to get back to Moscow. So the man has nowhere to lay his head because the kingdom's everywhere in all places. He got that. <laughs> he understood it better than most of us do. Are you willing to let go of those places where you've sunk your identity to follow? To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Uh, you know, it sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but the first time I heard that, I thought, whoa. That's, that's kind of rough, Jesus. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, let them bury themselves. You know, come on, let's go. I mean, really, are we just going to leave the dead body laying out there? I mean, what's this? About? This seems odd. Doesn't seem, but, but then I started reading some of the early church commentary on this passage. And, and one of the things they point out is that, you know, nowhere in there does it tell you that the guy's dad is actually dead yet. Oh, that's different, isn't it? See, really what he's saying is, you know, Lord, that's great. I'll follow you. But, you know, I need to be here and take care of my dad until he dies. And then I'll bury him and then I'll come. And, and how often do we do that? Come up with all the things we need to do first. Right? Things we need to do first before we can follow Jesus. Lord, I'll follow you when my kids grow up. And, Lord, I'll follow you once they get out of college. And, and then, you know, Lord, I'll follow you once they're married. And then, Lord, I'll follow you when the grandkids grow up. And, and then, Lord, I'll follow you when the grandkids get out of college. And then, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm too doggone old for this. Right? All of our great excuses that we have, all the things that we need to do, all the stuff we need to accomplish first. And so Jesus says, you know, listen. You, you can stay behind and be dead and do all that stuff. Or you can decide to come alive and follow me. You choose. Your choice. Which do you want?
And another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I suspect that a lot of us are not agricultural background people, so let me help you with this a little bit. Uh, I used to spend summers uh, down near Alvin, Texas on my uh, uncle's property. He raised uh, cattle and rice down there, and, uh, and we would work with him. And so, you know, we, we kind of learned some things about that. And uh, <clears throat> we would go down there and spend several weeks in the summer and then sometimes go back several times uh, at other times of the year and get to do that. And he let my cousin, who was a year younger than me, uh, do all kinds of things out there on the ranch property that probably were not wise necessarily, but, you know, we were kind of out there and, you know, how bad could it be? Uh, well, it could be pretty bad, but anyway. Uh, so, so one time we're out there and they're, they're harvesting rice, they're combining the rice, and, uh, and my cousin and I are looking at those combines. You know, they're, I mean, have you ever seen one of those? You know, the great big machines, you know, and it's got the big thing in the front, and, and we're looking at that going, man, this is just really cool, you know, I mean, it's kind of really cool. It's a little scary, too, because they tell you stories about people that get sucked into them, you know, just, but anyway, you don't want to hear those. So, so we're looking at it, and, and the deck of it where you drive it, you know, to us looks like it's as high as the ceiling of this building up in the air. Uh, it wasn't because we were little, but I mean, it's, it's huge. And my uncle says, boys, would you like to harvest a row? Oh, would we? <laughs> yeah, this is like every boy's dream come true. Let us at it. So we climbed up there on that deck with him, and, and he, you know, he stayed up there. He didn't leave us alone. Don't, don't think he was dumb or anything, but he stayed up there, and he put us on his leg, and, and we steered and ran the gears and all this kind of stuff and ran that combine across that field, and we got to the other end of it, and uh, he said, okay, let me turn it around, and, and he turned it around, and he says, I'm he says, let me, I'm, I'm going to do this for the next couple. And we're going, oh, no, we want to do it. He goes, no, no, I, th I think you need to let me do it. Because, see, you know, the ground's uneven. The machines pull different kinds of ways. And, you know, you think you're going straight. And you're not. You know, it's important when you're working a, a field like that, especially if you're using equipment. Uh, but it's important for those rows to be straight and for things to be lined out right because that makes it easier to plant. It makes it easier to harvest. It ensures that you, you use the land as well as possible. And, and, you know, when you look back over where we had been, you know, it really looked a little more like this. Uh, you know, it, it not exactly straight. Everything crooked and all that. I mean, it looked like some, you know, drunk had been driving the combine through the field and he was going to have to clean up our mess so that the rest of the people would be able to work in the field too. And when you're running the plow, you know, if, if you're not keeping your eye fixed on where you're going, or if you're running the combine in our case, you're not fixed on where you're going. If you're distracted by what's over here, or you're distracted by what's over there, or heaven forbid, you turn around and look back here, bad things are going to happen. And so Jesus says, listen, you, you know, you, you either got to be all in, you got to have your eyes focused on the cross, or this isn't going to work. You, know, you can't be distracted over here. You can't be distracted by over there. You can't keep looking back at what you're leaving behind. You've got to commit to do this and be all in. So what's your favorite excuse? And Jesus says, follow me. So that hymn, that song, I've decided to follow Jesus, uh, <clears throat> which we've sung and, you know, I always thought kind of came out of some part of America or whatever, actually comes from India is where it originates. Uh, a Baptist missionary goes over to India 
He goes at what is at that time uh, into one of the most uh, violent and difficult areas of India. Uh, there are a bunch of uh, little chieftain uh, areas that are there and, uh, and, and they are always at war with each other and they are headhunters. Uh, when they kill uh, their enemy, they take the head off and keep it, they dry it out. Then they like to wear it. Uh, that's a sign of, uh, I'm gonna have your wisdom and your power with me. Uh, and so they would wear those when they went into battle the next time, which I think not only gave them power, but probably intimidated the heck out of anybody they were facing, you know? I mean, it would kind of make me nervous. Uh, but this is what the, who they were and what they did. And, and when this Baptist missionary came over there and began to convert people to Christianity, the chieftains of these villages did not like that because they were losing their people to these Christians. So one of the men who had converted was brought into the village before one of the chieftains, and, and the chieftain demanded that he give up his Christian faith. And he says, I can't do that. I've decided to follow Jesus. And the chieftain said, we'll see about that. So he brought the man's children in front of him and killed them. He says, what are you going to do now? And he says, I, 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 I've decided to follow Jesus. I can't turn back. And the chieftain brought the man's wife in front of him and killed him, killed her. And the man said, even, even if you've killed my family and there's no one to go with me, I have the sight of all of Jesus and I cannot turn back. And the chieftain said, we will take your life. And he says, you know, I have left the world behind. All that lies in front of me is the cross. He was killed. He became a martyr. And his, his faithfulness in that moment became the spark that it just blew up Christianity in that part of India. It became a tremendous inspiration for people. And one of the other young men who knew him, who was inspired by that, took his words and crafted them into this song that we sing. In fact, the tune of the song is named after the village where he died. And so this hymn that we sing so casually sometimes actually is a song about tremendous sacrifice. So Jesus comes and says, follow me. I'm going to build the kingdom here in the midst. Are you willing, are you willing to leave everything behind? Everything behind. And let the Holy Spirit transform you into this people that I've called. Where the world truly lies behind you. And all that lies ahead is the cross. And as we enter into Lent, <laughs> I don't know about you, but that challenges me. To think about how serious are we about being disciples. Let's pray. Father, you come in the midst of this world. You call us to follow you. You invite us to be part of this kingdom, <clears throat> to be transformed by, by the power of the Spirit into those who are defined by our relationship to Christ, by those who have left everything, who have put the world behind us so that our eyes are fixed on the cross. 
And, and, and we, in response, instead of immediately following, we grasp at all of our excuses and all of our rationalizations, all the things we need to do first or the people we need to tend to first. So, Father, we need your courage, your strength, your love. That we might be willing to let go of the places and the things that have defined us. That we might be willing to set aside the distractions and the things that call us away. That we might be able to put the world behind us. So that the cross is before us. And we follow. Amen.